Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line, Matt. It's beautiful spring here in Texas. The weather's finally warming up. Baseball's full swing. What's the latest and greatest? Man, life's good. It's just busy. <laughs> latest and greatest. I mean, the Astros are slumping there for a while. It was a little tough to watch, but I got to go to the game on Saturday. Ah, nice. It's very awkward when you're in the stadium. You don't know what's going on, but you know they pulled Odorizzi after five pitches and huh. brought in a reliever who then pitched the remaining eight and two-thirds. <laughs> okay. You know, they won like 16 to two. So it was, you know, if you're going to spend money on tickets, it was, we got our money's worth. No kidding. How was it being in the it's Minute Maid Park there? I mean, because I was watching it on TV, it seems relatively full. Like there seems to be quite a few people going. Here's what I think is happening. And that was my second game. I'm finding excuses to go fairly regularly now, but nice. So they say, I think they say it's 50% capacity and there are some sections that'll say like fully social distance and others that won't. But what I think is happening is people are sitting down and then they're moving into better seats or just moving <laughs> up a little bit. Yeah. Because even like behind home plate, some games I'm watching TV, I'm like, those people are all stacked on top of each other. Yeah. You know, they're not real strict about mask rules and that sort of thing. You know, I know there's an inflection point where I'm well past my second shot on the vaccine. And, you know, at, at what point do we all get to, you know, go back to being our dirty selves? But <laughs> I was comfortable and, and didn't see it as a big deal. But certainly it's you wear your mask when you're walking around the stadium. But otherwise, it's just not as crowded is all right. I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that kind of makes for a nice experience too. It's nice to not have to walk over people between innings. And I mean, it's obviously for revenue wise, it's probably not great, but for the fan, it's not bad. Yeah. I mean, half of it, I think for me has just been like the first time I went, it was just like, man, I'm just so happy to be in the ballpark right now. Yeah. So I think for some folks, it, it's been that experience, but I'm sure when they open it up completely, it'll be like, why did it get so crowded? Right. Yeah. No, people will appreciate the little bit of distancing they had when it was like this. Speaking of baseball, I got my daughter's started T-ball and it's actually coach pitch. And I somehow ended up being the coach because we didn't have a coach, which actually worked out okay. Because when I signed her up for I-9 sports co-ed baseball, I didn't realize that it was only boys basically. So she's one of like probably three girls in the entire league, which is hilarious. And so she's a little intimidated, but thankfully I stepped up to the plate, no pun intended, and decided to be the head coach. So she stays very close to me, but this is the third game coming up. and Or this is actually will be the fourth game. And she's liking it. She She's hitting the ball pretty good because it's coach or it's like coach pitch. And then if they strike three times and they put the T up there. And last game, she didn't have to use the T one. So she was pretty pumped on that. And of course, we couldn't find a helmet that fits. So she's got this big, bright pink helmet that bobbles on her head when she runs and it like covers her eyes. And <laughs> so it's like, it's the funniest experience, but she's really enjoying it. She catches and throws with the same hand. So that makes it kind of challenging. But Little League Baseball is really just the neatest thing. And it's fascinating to see. You can almost pick out, and these kids are 
five and six years old, you can pick out which ones have it and which ones don't. And there's some kids that just naturally have a gift to play baseball. It is unreal. It is so cool to see. There's probably about three kids that I'd hedge my bets on if they stuck with it, they'll go somewhere. And, and even on some other teams, I'm like, these kids are athletes. Like, it's so cool. That's interesting. I mean, I don't know, because of COVID, I guess, with my son, he hasn't been around a lot of, you know, he hasn't been around a lot of other kids lately. He started to, but so we don't really know, you know, he's not even three yet. So we don't, yeah, <laughs> we don't, we don't really know where he stands, but given his genetics, we assume that he's not going to spend as much time on the field Yeah, <laughs> when selection comes around, but you know, he loves running around chasing things and very cool throwing balls and all that stuff. So, well, if he's a chip off the old block, he'll be a good runner. Cause you did cross country running, didn't you? Or long distance running? Yeah. I ran cross country in high school. You know, I, I allude that that was, 60 pounds ago, as opposed to years. But <laughs> yeah, you know, the great thing about running those is a training sport. You don't have to catch anything. You just distance yeah. running, you just put in the workouts and you'll get better. But, and when I did it, they couldn't cut you. So that, you know, that helped. Yeah. That helped your odds of staying on the team. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Nice. Well, you know, I'm sure we we obviously have a lot to catch up on, folks. So excuse our banter, but I think it's important sometimes, you know, just to catch up and and, you, and get the audience gets to hear a little bit of, you know, maybe conversations that we have outside of talking about drilling fluids. But nonetheless, we are here to talk about drilling fluids. Matt and I thought about revisiting a certain topic to kind of help tie some loose ends and really get a good understanding of what it means and why we have what we call a mud weight window. It's, you know, mud weight is obviously extremely important for well control, but beyond that, there's some, there's some key elements that we'd like to discuss. And so we'll get this kicked off. Matt, how would you, again, briefly, let's go through what is mud weight or, or mud density, fluid density? How would you summarize that? Well, it's, I mean, exactly as you say it, it's, it's how heavy does my fluid need to be to apply an equivalent pressure downhole? And, you know, there's different factors that dictate it, but, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things to me is that as the mud engineer or as a mud company, everybody says, oh, well, what's the, what's the recommended mud weight? And it's sort of an awkward thing because we're not really responsible for saying you need X mud weight. We can certainly talk about offset data, what we're used to, if we think we need more mud weight. But from a well control perspective, that's not our, our responsibility we necessarily want. And so understanding all of the factors that go into determining what the appropriate mud weight is. And, and we know sometimes we get it wrong, but we're sort of subject to it. It seems like a good idea to sort of run through all of the factors that come together because we don't really get to call that shot, but we're certainly subject to it, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. No, a lot of our suggestions are evidence-based through experience, not necessarily because we have access to specific data that the operator has to which then they determine the correct mud weight window. So Matt, what are some of the, the key factors to identify mud weight window? There, there's these big rocks that we typically look at, especially as a yeah, drilling engineer would, would look at with through internal data that they have access to. Yeah. So you're basically looking at the mud weight window is basically the window or the space between your pore pressure and your fracture gradient. And so you're trying to figure out basically how can I hold fluids back? How, but how can I avoid breaking the formation down? But then there's, you know, geomechanics where I might need more mud weight than necessary to 
you know, then the pore pressure dictates just to keep the hole open, especially when I drill into, you know, directionally or, you know, not necessarily vertical, but so you've got to balance basically that pore pressure, the fracture gradient limit. And when you run out of that, you're going to have to set casing, which is expensive and customers would like to limit, you know, the number of casing strings they have to run. Right. So there's all those things sort of coming together. I thought maybe we could kind of break those down in a little bit more detail. Yeah, no, I think that's a great idea because these are terms that get thrown around all the time. And and even in the office, it's, you know, one engineer coming in from the field or, you know, someone that you know, has a good technical background comes in and, and some of these terms are not really clearly defined. We kind of hear them get thrown around and we just kind of draw conclusions as to what they might be, but there's certainly some importance and some things that need to be considered. So Matt, let's go ahead and start with pore pressure. Let's define that and then how that ties into density requirements. So pore pressure is, it's actually the native pressure. We say pore pressures because in the pores, the rocks, there's gas, water, you know, what have you, hydrocarbons, and you need some sort of pressure to keep those fluids from coming in, right? That's well control 101. I don't, I don't want things flowing on me. And it's possible, you know, many times this can be sort of a, you know, linear progression, but it's very possible that you could drill into something that's severely underpressured or highly overpressured. You might drill into an overpressured zone, and that's what we call taking a kick, where you get on well control and have to wait up to stop that flow. So you needed more pressure than you thought. And it can change, right? So sometimes, let's talk about West Texas. You drill through the Cherry and Brushy Canyon. They're severely depleted. Those used to be place, you know, formations that people produced out of. Now they tend to take fluid. <laughs> yeah. So you don't need as much, you don't need mudway to hold that back. But at the same time, at one point in time, maybe you needed more mudway to drill through that. Right. So, and then the other part of it, when you're thinking about poor pressure is you don't necessarily, and I mean, we've talked about managed pressure drilling a little bit, but you don't want to be directly equivalent to your poor pressure. A lot of times in conventional drilling, you want about 300 PSI over that. Sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, depending on what the operator decides and technical limitations. But this is basically what we call kick tolerance, where if I move my pipe around, could I swab the well? Could I do something that actually draws in an influx? Right. So in conventional drilling without your managed pressure drilling equipment, you're probably going to be higher than your pore pressure. You're not going to be right down at the, the uh, narrow portion there. Makes sense. And one thing I actually was going to mention before we even started talking about these terms is if, if you're listening out there and you're on a rig or, or if you're you know by your phone or something where you're not driving, just Google mudweight window and follow along. It might actually kind of help these sort of concepts sink in. Because if you look at it on a graph, you'll typically have, you know, it looks like a starting at the top left-hand corner, it'll go diagonally down with, you know, these pressures on the X-axis and depth on the y and then you can really see, you know, as you go deeper, typically you need an increase in mud weight. And so if, if it's unfamiliar, it's kind of confusing. I would suggest Googling that. that that'll really help. If you were looking at this and you're following along the episode, it kind of help clear things up. I'm a visual learner. So for me, yeah. that's something that I would suggest. YouTube has some great ones. I think University of Texas, there's a number of them, but a few like online classes. And one of the great things about the graph you're talking about is sometimes they'll even show like, okay, here's the mud weight and you go down and you can see this constant value going by depth. And as you go down, you'll see that poor pressure increase where you're going to need more mud weight. And then you'll see where they chose their casing point. 
Yeah. And then you'll see the next mud weight up because they weighted up at that casing point. And you can see those lines. And then to the right of that, you might see the curve with a fracture gradient. And you'll really get the idea of this window or this space between the two curves that you're trying to operate within. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So yeah, I just didn't want to get sidetracked too much there, but thought I'd throw that in. So on the other side of, of things, you know, we mentioned poor pressure, then there's what we call fracture gradient. So Matt, how would you describe fracture gradient? So fracture gradient is basically the equivalent pressure where the formation breaks down. And so, you know, understanding when we expect losses or, or the maximum ECD we can really handle before something is going to go wrong on the, on the loss circulation side of things is obviously very important if we know. This is always kind of the trick is we have our best guess. And not only that, but more importantly, you're going to have these layers, you're going to drill through shale, and then you're going to drill through sandstone, then you're, you know, alternating maybe some other different formation types. And so you could drill through something that's fairly weak, knowing it's fairly weak, and then, oh, wow, the shale's really strong. But you got to pay attention to the weakest one, obviously. So the weakest link. But, you know, most of the time we would expect our weakest point to be at the shoe because we have the least amount of overburden or rock on top of it to kind of compact it, if you will, provide that strength. And this goes back to when we talked about leak off tests or FITs is that's where we try and actually squeeze on that and figure out how strong that is before going ahead in case we don't know. And many times that can be even dictated by regulating bodies and that sort of thing to make sure that you have enough space in your mud weight window to drill ahead. Right. Now that makes sense. So we've got our pore pressure, we've got our fracture gradient. We want to stay in between the two, you know, for well control purposes, you know, to, to prevent influx, but also not to completely break the rock down. But then also there's a mechanical aspect to this as well. And a term geomechanics comes into mind. A lot of times, just mechanically speaking, you need enough overburden to keep the hole open. Matt, how would you kind of further describe that or what geomechanics is and how that plays into the whole mud weight window concept? Well, you, you think about all these rock stresses and how they're coming together. And what you're going to find is that, you know, a vertical hole is, if you think about those layers, if they're all you know, horizontal, that's one thing, but let's say I start to build an angle now and those things want to delaminate and and fall in where I start to build angle, or perhaps there's some sort of inconsistency and geologically. And so then I might start having well-born stability and, and cavings, which we've talked about most of the time. And everybody's heard plenty of my tirades on Brian face salinity to know that a lot of times when we see some of these cavings, most of the time it's a mudway issue. It's not necessarily your salinity. Not to say it never is, but it's that the rock stresses and you know the way they all come together requires more pressure to support that section of the hole. And a lot of this is driven by well trajectory. But it may be another factor. And I mean, I remember our mudway window got really narrow when I was in Azerbaijan. The problem was because of geomechanics. We were having we needed mud weight to keep the hole open but we needed so much mud weight that we were almost up against the fracture gradient. And so you were kind of forced with the choice of, do I risk losses to make sure I can keep the hole open or do I deal with these unknown amount of cavings, which could take me, I risk getting stuck and packing off or taking days to get out of the hole. Right. It was a real challenge. 
So it's got to be considered as a factor when we talk about our mud weight window beyond just poor pressure. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and something you briefly mentioned earlier was, you know, set casing depths. And, you know, folks out there might think, well, you know, how do they actually come up with casing depths? And certainly there's an element of, you know, covering groundwater and then, you know, having it set sometimes maybe at a certain depth so that you can, you know, too much hole, open hole exposure can lead to challenging well stability issues. But a lot of it is mud weight related, Matt. So how do we go about that? And, and how are these well planners and drilling engineers kind of keying in on which depth to set their casing and how mud weight window would tie into it? Well, I think it, it's, you know, once we know we're getting so narrow where my mud weight is actually risking breaking down the formation, or I'm going to need more mud weight, the one thing you can do is put some metal pipe and cement behind it. And then I can wait up and drill out and I've got kind of another section I can go down. So, you know, securing those zones, like you said, securing an abnormally pressurized region so that you know, if you think about it, I have a really long interval and I get, I go on losses or I have a well control scenario, it can get pretty scary. And so there's a lot, a lot of times where casing set to make sure that we're not, you know, right, right on the edge all the time. And sometimes, you know, there's contingency strings, right? We drill through something, perhaps we go on a ton of losses and we say, look, the safest thing to do right now is isolate that. And then we can, we can drill ahead from there. So, you know, a lot of times casing, casing may be set by depth, but a lot of times it's also by a formation top, right? So that's where the mud loggers come in. I've been on enough rigs to see where the geologist says we're almost at some depth and we drill 300 feet further and the geologist getting nervous and everyone is making fun of them on the rig. (laughs) And then we finally get to call TD for the section. So it's formation tops can be, you know, that can be a regulation, but that can also be just, we know this is a good place to set casing to set us up for the next new, you know, window that we've opened up when we set casing and cement. Right. Yeah. No. And one thing too, that is, is important to consider is sometimes these windows are extremely narrow. I mean, we've, we've kind of mentioned narrow mudway window, but it can get very finicky. And, and so there's things that we can do operationally, you know, like different fluid selections, maybe some surface equipment that can help regulate ECDs to really, I mean, cause sometimes you may, you may be playing with a couple pounds, but then you may be only playing with, you know, a couple tenths ECD or, you know, a couple tenths, you know, up or down that you can really go. So Matt, how are we mitigating the risk when we know we do have an extremely tight window to play with? Well, we've, we've talked a little bit about, you know, we've talked about low ECD muds in the past in deep water. I mean, those were, those are probably one of the biggest innovations in drilling fluids in recent history was just the idea of being able to run a narrow window. And you think about the, the sheer economics of, let's say you're able to run in a tighter window, whether that's through managed pressure drilling, where I'm able to keep constant pressure and, and maintain it. Those things help you, you maintain a narrow window, but okay. So if I run less casing, it's not only the cost of the casing, think about hole size, right? Now I can drill smaller surface hole sizes, knowing that I don't have a contingency or I don't have to run extra casing strings in deep water where you've got water instead of rock for a certain, you know, 5,000 feet, let's say I don't have as strong a rock when I get down there. So inherently you're going to end up running more casing strings. So just think about the impact if you can ride that narrow window effectively. But one of the first things we can do 
on our, you know, to even decide what kind of fluid we need is run hydraulics. Get an understanding of what your ECD is, what your maximum ECD is under, you know, the most adverse conditions for that whole section. Do proper modeling for your, you know, your temperature, how your fluid's going to behave. Low ECD muds, you can demonstrate the value if that's something that you're looking at. Even low solids keep your plastic viscosity down to keep your ECD down. But then something, you know, we've touched on in the past as well. Wellbore strengthening was kind of revolutionary for deep water as well because it extended some of those intervals yeah. to help eliminate casing. So through proper engineering, there's case after case after case, being able to strengthen the wellbore, drill a little deeper and run a narrower window because I've, I've strengthened my fracture gradient. So I've extended that curve further out to the right. And so I can drill deeper before I need casing. But all of those things are, are worth knowing. And, the, and I think there's, if you circle back to learning, so when we go on losses, running hydraulics, what, what was my actual fracture grading? Because right. on land, I mean, you know, we talk about some of these technologies. And if, if you go to most of these unconventional areas, we know what mudways people are running and that sort of thing. But like you drill through a fracture, you're, you know, you could be on the well 10 feet down on the pad and find something completely different. But is that information you can learn from to say, okay, my fracture grain is actually much smaller than I thought. Yeah, you know, th- those kinds of things can be helpful for subsequent wells. And so I think even when you realize you got it wrong, you can learn from that for the next one. Yeah, no, that's true. And, you know, speaking about wellbore strengthening, I mean, that's, that may pique someone's interest to learn more. And so fortunately, actually, I'm not sure exactly which episode it is, but if you visit aesfluids.com and search up on the flow line. We've got a wellbore strengthening episode in there that kind of dives a little deeper into, you know, the who, what, where, and why, and how, and all the rest of it. So, but if you do have any questions, certainly you can hit us up, Matt, it's kind of a narrowly focused topic, but again, extremely important to understand, you know, what it is and how it applies to what we do. Any other thoughts or comments regarding Mudweight window before we close out? Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing I did, we didn't really cover is yes, there is such thing as underbalanced drilling, right? So you're actually drilling below pore pressure. You're letting the well flow. So you've got to divert, you know, normally you've got a flare stack and a big, you know, mud gas separator and all that stuff, but it is possible to drill at a mud weight below pore pressure under certain conditions. People do it all the time. That's one thing we left out versus just main, you know, trying to stay at pore pressure with managed pressure drilling. That's a great point. And, and certainly, a, you know, maybe topic for another episode is just focus on underbalanced drilling because there's, you know, quite a bit to unpack there as well. But yeah, if anyone is curious, like Matt mentioned, you know, you don't always have to stay within the window. There's applications and, and procedures to drill outside of the window, understanding the risks involved. And, you know, again, that comes down to a lot of planning and logistics. But yeah, I think that's something we need to cover in, in one of the upcoming episodes, which we'll do. So with that said, you know, if anyone does have any questions, like I said, you can hit us up on LinkedIn or you can email us at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com if you could leave a review. And if you're in the drilling fluid world or, you know, just anything drilling related and you think someone might be interested in an episode, please share it. You know, that certainly helps spread the good word. And our purpose is to educate the drilling fluids and drilling world. And if there's anything else we can do to support your educational needs, let us know. Matt, thanks again for your time. Go Astros. And until next time, take care, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. 
Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.